Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. <laughs> this is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. I can get right up on here. You guys can hear me. NPR, Yeah. NPR flow. Dude, the NPR flow is way too sensual, though. Like, I don't get why you need to be up on the mic so hard. <laughs> it is that is like ASMR, like proxy, like some weird. There's some weird other pleasures people well, yeah. are getting from NPR just than the news, like just like I was stuff. gonna say. Exactly. Like, there's people getting other pleasures from all those ASMR videos on YouTube, and I'm sure before that it was just, like, NPR and, like, yeah. books on tape, you know? Yeah. <laughs> just a, a book on tape that's, like, sensual in parentheses, you know? That, that like, a sensual reading of... Of uh, Moby Dick. Moby Dick. <laughs> the Karma Sutra. Yeah, I mean, with that kind of book, you have to have it. You're not going to get, like, uh, the Kama Sutra narrated by Wilford Brimley. Like, jacking off to the Kama Sutra. Like, a book that's, like, supposed to be for, like, sex moves you do with, like, another person. <laughs> the Kama Sutra book on tape is, uh, that's like a 90s, like, Homer Simpson joke. <laughs> We're back on Extended Clip. It's part two of our best of 2023 episode and we're just gonna get right back the fuck into it i'm still your host eddie averill i'm still malcolm bomb still i think um i'm no longer jt White. <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> oh god who, why is the domino's app blowing up my phone i don't like that at all i've ordered one pizza one they pizza know. In the last year, but they know how broke I am. <laughs> I think my Citibank app and my Domino's app are talking, you know? <laughs> Throwing a couple coupons, sweeten the deal. I think, I think that'll hook them. I think that'll hook them. <laughs> Number eight of 2023 coming in at also 16 points of fire. By Christian Petzl. Now, Christian Petzl has been on quite a good run lately. I feel like all of his movies show up on year-end lists, but they haven't quite made it to ours. I don't think like uh, the timelines match up. Like, were we doing a podcast when Transit came out? I don't. Yeah, I don't or maybe. Oh, maybe Transit actually did make our list then, because I liked Transit, uh, and you liked Transit, and Phoenix was before we did a podcast, though. Yeah. No, I, I have to like for Petzl. It's kind of the opposite of Hong, where I feel I've been meaning to watch his movies every year, and I just haven't for no no good reason other than laziness. But I, I was glad I checked out a fire here because it, it's really good. JT, did you get a chance to check this one out? No, I haven't. I haven't seen any Petzold still. That's uh, a big blind spot I, I need to fix. But yeah, no, I haven't seen a fire. Yeah, no. Uh, Transit is quite good, but the thing is, like, so his last few, he had this diptych of Transit and Phoenix, which were these, like, very he interior. He did what with his dick? <laughs> he dipped it <laughs> into the transit system. It was flagrant. He got arrested, and he was a never able to take a train in Germany again. So that's what um, that movie's about. Interesting. 
Yeah, it's about a train that transports you to 1945, but the guy gets caught in it, you know? So uh, 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 only part of him get, goes there. No, but uh, so Transit and Phoenix both played with like German World War II history, which is not a very playful subject. Uh, but obviously, like, they're uh, playful in a matter of speaking, in that the period details are a mix of contemporary life and uh like period signifiers kind of and like there are plots that have to do with the past but are very much rooted in the present as a kind of uh, aesthetic dichotomy so then when he goes off and makes a fire i was kind of blindsided by it when i heard that it was a kind of romare-esque movie about a writer taking a retreat in the woods uh and it's kind of like a uh sorry let me miss my thing it's kind of like for guys who love eric romare films but always find themselves getting really frustrated with the characters in them mm-hmm, uh that's yeah. like the lead character <laughs> in this is like uh leon played by thomas schubert you know he's he's the guy who's watching a romare movie getting pissed off you know because it's it's a classic how you gonna be mad on vacation movie it's a guy shielding nature from himself with his laptop as he's trying to write and uh just like denying himself for the first half at least denying himself the pleasures of an art house romance uh with this mysterious woman before he finally gives into it and it's uh it's really phenomenal i love the passivity of leon uh and he just lets these dramas play out in front of him uh as a dramatist himself until he finally gives in because Paula Beer, as the elusive, mysterious woman who was staying at the cabin before they arrived there, is like a perfect novelist's muse without being too one-sided. And the film allows her her own independence as well. And it's all these things put together. It's like this comedy of manners, an art house romance, a vacation movie. It becomes a sneaky climate movie about impeding natural disasters, destroying our last glimpses of natural beauty. And it's just like a another notch in the bedpost for old Chris Petz. <laughs> another, I love that phrase, another notch in the bedpost. <laughs> another body he slayed in this movie. Yeah. No, I, notches, uh, <laughs> notches in the bedpost. I gotta get, you know what? I hate to say it. This is the most Reddit thing I'll ever say. Giving it up for Dan Harmon. There was a season two community joke about that where uh, they're, they're like making notches under the table about, you know, something about probably how many pussies uh joel McHale has slayed but uh you know i think it's uh abed's character has one that just says notches and he just like puts another one in there <laughs> like just counting the notches <laughs> it's a very good meta joke about notches in the bedpost <laughs> ladies if you go over to a guy's house and he's got notches in his bedpost run don't walk oh, you know that man's watching community <laughs> That's my, my new favorite bit on the podcast, the relationship advice extended clip. But um, <laughs> For women, I, too. Like, not yeah, guy yeah, advice. Not, yeah, <laughs> guys are not allowed to take our advice. We were only giving advice to the women who listen to the show. Exactly, yeah. Um, if your man's watching Community, <laughs> lady, that's a deal breaker. Yeah. <laughs> See, I don't get the racial flair that's coming out in your voice just because what I'm you, giving what, advice what to a mean? woman. What do you mean? What racial flair? I'm just talking more expressively. Like, you can't do this. You got to do that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Uh, I accept. I accept. No, for a fire. I, I feel like when I first started watching the movie, the passivity you're talking about, I, it kind of took took me a minute to kind of get on the movie's wavelength. And then when I, when it, when I did, I, I really kind of 
I latched on. And yeah, I think the, <laughs> it is funny how you said like, it is like a guy watching a Romare movie, you know what I mean? And it is unfortunately the, a fire might win, um, the one of my another superlatives, the guy I'm most unfortunately like award. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I saw some writers being like, you know, I hated this character so much. It's like, bro, that's the, you know, the silver screen is really a giant mirror sometimes. You know. Yeah. Um, so just kind of like the way this movie kind of sneaks up over time, and then like kind of like the the fire aspect and how that kind of shifts everything. I don't know, really gave it a lot of dramatic verb. And I feel like I, 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 I can't develop too much thoughts on this movie that, that you didn't say. But um, so, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. But Petzold, that's, that's, that's like a director I need to keep check, checking in with every year. Like he's earned that right where I'm like, all right, I got to check out this new Petzold. Like it's definitely Honestly, gonna be worthwhile. We might got we might have to go back and see if some of the the recent ones were like the new classics. Like we might gotta totally. we might got I keep saying we might gotta. What is that? We might have to. <laughs> we hey. we might have to go back to. Well, it's because I'm saying we might have to go back to uh, yeah. Phoenix in Transit and just talk about them in the context of like the best of 2010s or the best of the 21st century. I've seen some really convincing writing on that, and uh, you know I liked those movies quite a bit, but but I, I don't think I fully got them. So I really want to go back to those, especially with how much I really, really liked a fire. I mean, a fire was my number four or something like that of the year. It was very high uh, on my list. Um, let me confirm that. Yeah, it was number four on my personal list. So let's move on to number seven. This is one that I did not get to see this was fallen leaves by aki kurzmaki which is ironic because first of all we've already talked about this movie a bit but neither of you had seen a kurzmaki before it was your first and i have seen i think four of his movies and did not see this one um just because i didn't have time and didn't want to just squeeze it into year-end catch-up kind of uh and i wanted to give it the proper attention when i get to it eventually but you guys both liked it quite a bit huh yeah, as Malcolm had said earlier, I think I've avoided first film syndrome. But I, I in terms of that, uh, there are things that like do, like I, I don't know. I th I think I'm gonna like this uh, charismaki guy, especially with how uh, akin to like uh, an Ozu movie uh, this was in particular, like, I don't know, the shots of the signs, like the way like transit and sort of, uh, just modern industrial life is depicted along with like the fact that the movie is a journey of two characters who are not particularly expressive and just like you deal with a lot of like interiority, um, within them. And then very minor, uh, moments become sort of like very big, uh, things. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know the central just sort of, uh, aspect of like, believably uh, miserable world setting where these two characters are kind of able uh, to escape in a way through uh, a little bit of movies and a little bit of romance. Um, but obviously that's a, a large oversimplification. Um, 
But yeah, also just, I mean, Malcolm, you wanted to, uh, you mentioned uh, you're going to talk about the cinematography for this. Just a beautiful looking movie. Of the scenes of like at the bar, whether it's uh, the lead, the lead male by himself or whether they're, you know, he's with his boy karaoke and kind of just like the production design and like the look of the movie and like, like, I don't know if like you saying Ozu is a good point because I think that's also what, you know, made this movie stand out and like kind of made it more enjoyable. It's like this is obviously obviously influenced by like an older style of movies. Very, you know, this is. Uh, positivity has gotten a bad name over the years, but it's a very like life affirming movie um, while also, you know, addressing, you know, the stark and miserable realities of, you know, that some of that the lead characters go through here. And I, I and I think it does a great job of um, kind of like establishing these individual characters you know, in, in their lives and we know kind of like their problems you know, whether it's you know, both of them for the both of them money for the male lead character, like alcoholism and whatnot. And I think there's just a lot of smart narrative schemes that like, uh, I don't know, that just enhance the movie. Like I love uh, this is classic like rom-com fare almost. But like when um, he loses, you know, the female leads uh, phone number and he just kind of has to keep going back to the same spot over and over again in hopes and hoping that she'll be there. And it, I don't know, it does it all in a way that, it, you know, it's, 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 it's underratedly like stylistic, but it's done without fanfare and finding that balance, I think is like, <laughs> like one of the key balances of, right, of making like artistic movies is like having the style inform the narrative, vice versa, and both of them compounding to, you know, make it stronger. And, uh, you know, the, it's also a very funny movie, too. Like, yeah. I love uh, the the best friend uh, character of the male lead. Both both of uh, uh, both of the, the leads, uh, best friends are very funny in this movie. You know what I mean? You almost want to see a movie of that, you know, of them hooking up or some shit like that. And uh, just kind of like the, the dry humor and the conversational humor. It all feels very realistic and lived in. And uh, yeah, like the conclusions... Uh, are very sweet and I I really like this movie. I I put it at number two on my personal list and uh, I'm definitely going to be checking out more of this guy's movies, Aki Karismaki. Yeah, no, there's one in terms of I, I'm glad you brought up how funny it was. Um, I love that they go to see the dead don't die for their first Amazing. date is such a funny choice and just like that you have like the two old dudes uh, that are leaving the theater and like the first thing that they say is the one is like oh I think this kind of was like uh, uh, Bresson's diary of a country priest <laughs> uh, and then the other one's like no I thought it was like uh, a band of outsiders or uh, it's just a very very funny moment I think uh, Kersmaki is like good buddies with Jarmish, so it's a yeah. fun little nod there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely influenced each other's style, uh, working from the 80s onward, and they both are influenced by Ozu and kind of fuse that with their love of more outsider characters and kind of alternative cultural spheres. Uh, Kurzmaki, I guess. Well, I, I would say both of them being so political in that sense. It's like these outsider characters are 
always going to be forced into those situations because of some societal ills. Uh, what even if they're total weirdos in some of the Jarmusch movies, you know, probably same with some of the Kurzmaki ones that I haven't seen. But uh, yeah, no, that one looked very good. Couldn't can't wait to see that one. Um, do you guys want to give out the award for best supporting performance? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, let, me, let me go first because my my choice was actually uh, Jean. Hittiton, who's the the I absolutely slaughtered that name. I, I without a doubt like that that was like a D plus performance on the name there. Uh, yeah, who are who? It's these Finnish names are tough for me, man. I'm just gonna be I'm just gonna be honest. But uh, Huatari and Fallen Leaves. I don't know. I just I think he adds such a, a levity to the movie, and I just love the performance. And I got a couple other shouts out shout outs. Uh, Charles Melton in May December, obviously it being my favorite movie of the year, um, I have to you know give him nods. Jessica Lange in Marlowe, real heads now. Um, and uh, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> just a, an honorable mention. Um, yeah, and you're si- allowed it, to. You're allowed to. That's why it's there. <laughs> Simon Rex in the Sweet East, and by far Great. that that's my favorite. Uh, um, I like the movie overall, but the segment with Simon Rex kind of. Uh, um, being like a, a new wave, uh, conservative, you know, race realist type guy and is like weird, uh, teenage, uh, romance, like something he got out of a 17th century book. Uh, it's, it's just so hilarious. And Rex, uh, plays it to a perfect T. Um, JT, your supporting actor, uh, supporting or actress, ac- actor, I mean, I can do uh, not to. I, I won't do one of both. I'll just do a lump, just uh, no, no gender, just acting support in a supporting role. I'm gonna say uh, Kevin McGee in Boston yes. Johnny as the man of the woods. Like uh, that, I feel like I, I don't know. It, it depends on the Motown works. McGee's roles range from like more starring to supporting. He is generally in the more supporting tier, but the man of the woods is just such a funny, ridiculous turn, especially from a man who is usually like a, the a more stoic villain. And I think he brings a lot of that to this role, which is just like so like the way he's dressed is so goofy that I think like, I don't know, it brings out. Uh, I forget who I was talking to about like Motern movies recently, but it is like the beauty of them all being like variation, like really inventive variations on like more or less the same thing. I feel like you come across like new layers of performances uh, from these like small like hometown actors, and I mean obviously McGee is one of the breakout stars of the Roxburgh Farley movies. Um, but yeah, no, his, uh, role as man of the woods was fantastic. The man of the woods might also be my best supporting. Actor <laughs> the man of the woods is, I, that's like, I mean, you could call it pastiche to, uh, things like, uh, twin peaks and other others that have had mystical woodsmen, uh, using, uh, the, their native ancestry or maybe just their connection to the woods. Uh, I think in this one, it's just, it's just his connection to the woods. That's just how he talks, you know? Uh, the man of the woods is 
fucking fantastic in that i i gotta say that's one of the funniest things there is uh i also will shout out the editor character uh from close your eyes uh the the character of (laughs) um uh, so you have Mario Pardo and Close Your Eyes, the character of Max, uh, the editor. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And uh, you know what? Something from some early year slop. Not a very good movie. In fact, some of this was laughable. But the supporting, the, all the performances and just the weight and watchability of the movie held it together. I'm talking about Jonathan Majors in Creed Three. Uh, that oh, is yeah. a quest. I know. I look. What a shout I would out. say also, <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Majors on Good Morning America up there as well. <laughs> I forgot about Creed Three. Also, Creed Three also, wasn't bad. Yeah, Stephen A. Smith in Creed Three. Also very good Um, (laughs) for sports movie quarter. Stephen A. Smith in Creed three, Scott Van Pelt in champions. You know, those are, those are the performances that you used to see in every movie that had to do with sports, even uh, a little bit, you know? Uh, But I, I just wanted to shout those out, but yeah, Jonathan majors in Creed three, like, yeah, he's not, you know, Dolph Lundgren or Mr. T, but he's like up there. It's like one of the better uh, villain performances in that series. Uh, I, I I liked him a lot. That was the best part of the movie for sure was his performance. Creed three, a movie I forgot about. I, I saw Zoller put it on his end of year list. It's like, yeah. you know what? That's cool. I like that. I like yeah. That. I like that Zoller put uh, how to blow up a pipeline on his list. It's yeah. like a nice olive branch across the aisle, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> To me, that means he, he beat the accusations. You know what I mean? <laughs> and also, put Jawan on there. A lot of you guys aren't oh, seeing shit. one Indian yeah. movie a year. You know what yeah. I mean? Not to pat myself on the back for seeing one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, guys, I'm just as progressive as S. Craig Zoll. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But literally, the most leftist list of the year is Craig's. <laughs> like, literally, look, any, any end of your list... Craig Zoller's list is literally the most leftism coded one of the year. I'm sorry to say. You want to keep with performances? Let's go lead performance. Let's just knock them right out of the park. Uh, because I, my lead performance is going to be the lead of the number six movie of the year, according to our list. So I'll, I'll kick it back to you guys. Uh, Malcolm, do you have your lead performance of the year that you want to shout out? Oh yeah, I kind of went with a uh, an obvious pick. I, I really loved uh, Giamatti in the holdovers. I just really did, and uh, I think a lot of the movie hinges on his acting too, which I think is, you know, maybe you know, as a teacher, that's how I grade my papers sometimes. You know what I mean? Like if there's some weight put upon your shoulders, I, I kind of respect that, and uh, yeah, I think we'll talk about the holdovers, but Giamatti. I was. This is something I had. I kind of had uh, trouble picking my favorite performance of the year, so I kind of just went with something that obviously stuck out in my mind. But there was a lot of good performances this year. JT. Um. Yeah. I mean, I would also probably echo uh, Giamatti uh, to some extent. But I mean, beyond that, uh, to shout out a movie that was on my list. Um, that uh, I haven't mentioned at all yet. Another uh, amazing Indian movie from this year uh, was Leo. Um, it's a part of the 
Lokesh cinematic universe uh, by the same director who brought you uh, last year's Vikram. Uh, Leo was kind of a spin on uh, fucking um, uh, History of Violence, uh, where it's about a man uh, played by uh, Vijay, the Indian uh, uh, star who um, is like a family man now. Uh, but was once Leo Das, a like notorious like gangster, and I think it's fun how uh, his performance. He's able to like I don't know. It's that type of like awakening thing that occurs in a history of violence, where you sort of see uh, kind of not like an unraveling of like a character but you sort of see this other side emerging when uh the second life that they've tried to build for themselves uh sort of falls apart by the outside violent forces like coming back into their life and uh i don't know is one of the I, I think it's a lead performance uh that obviously ties together the whole film uh yeah i don't know all right um Getting into my lead performances, I will uh, shout out a couple uh, runners-up real quick from the two German films that I loved. I, I thought that they were both not carried by, but uh, were great in large part because of their lead performances. So Anne Radpole as Inga in My Falcon and uh, Thomas Schubert as Leon in A Fire were both fantastic and really contributed to the interiority of the drama of those movies. Uh, I also wanted to shout out Hong Sang-soo regular Ki Bong as uh, the kind of Hong stand-in poet in In Our Day. Uh, his final moments, uh, not just the interview scene, which kind of picks up where the, the Q&A scene from Like You Know It All leaves off, and uh, it, it almost like he feels like he he repeats some lines from that 15 years later not that he was in that movie but another hong movie um and I, I i just feel like his final moments out on the rooftop by himself uh just silent you achieve such an interiority with him and i i really think that's something that uh it is really great um but the best lead performance of the year to me was joaquin phoenix in Bo is Afraid, which is also the number six film of the year. That's right. Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid is our number six. And I, I guess we'll start by talking about Joaquin because I wanted to give him this award. This is one of the most reaction-based, uh, like reaction shot-based Joaquin performances. And, uh, Inherent Vice is probably the only one I would put above it. Uh, you know, thinking about when Bigfoot starts eating the weed, like that reaction shot's the best thing in his whole career probably but this movie is just a lot of him reacting to crazy shit going on and i i think it's really fantastic at that um but i, I like that that's what gets at the point of the film is as comedy but not as a joaquin as a comedic leading man but as joaquin as your guide into a comedic world he's almost playing the nervous straight man if you will 
Uh, and that's what I love so much about this. I mean, it, it takes it, it is influenced by people like Woody Allen, Albert Brooks and Philip Roth. And it's like, yeah, Woody Allen has his movies where he's running around telling jokes on camera. But a lot of times these guys are almost trying to play the straight man in these comedies. But they're so neurotic and everything that they can't help but be the comedic character. And that's why he's so good in this movie. So Bo is afraid. Uh, uh, by Ari Aster. The first hour may have been the hardest I've ever turned on a filmmaker in real time. I disliked Hereditary so much that I even skipped Midsummer, you know, and some years went by and I just don't really care that much about the whole like elevated horror thing. I think like four years ago, that was a thing though, right? It was like, it's over. I don't like horror it's movies. Exactly, right? But it was like, I like horror movies. I'm not going to give into this bullshit. It comes at night, you know, kind of wow. shit. Like, uh, <laughs> I come whenever I want. <laughs> hey, oh. That might have been um, the lowest point of elevated horror is it comes at night, you know, as, as, as people people hate on hereditary. It's like, like, you know, which I don't like hereditary either, but you watch it comes at night. You're like, OK, you know, there's levels to this shit, at least. That one was by the Trey Edward Schultz brothers, right? True. And uh, <laughs> I, I think the weekend he, he found his new auteur to terrorize to because I think they're going to make something together. So the idol oh, may be on the way. <laughs> So, you know, maybe I might turn on him next year, turn on him next year. Who knows? From the star of the idol and the guy who brought you Cretia. <laughs> waves. Uh, oh, man. Waves. That's, I for, yeah, that's the real one. But anyway, uh, Ari Aster's bow is afraid. As I said, like, I, I don't feel riled up by that. So I went in with like an open mind because I heard this was good even by people who didn't like those movies. And I was like, all right, I'll see what it is. And right away, it's not a horror movie. And that's why it's good. I, I think maybe I just don't get him as a horror guy, really. Um, the city and the suburbs in this movie in the first hour, especially are just presented as everything in contemporary life that a person who is maybe a little bit nervous can be afraid of, uh, even without the personal context of Ari Aster or Joaquin Phoenix or whoever the viewer may be. It's a it's a satire on the way that the wealthy fear the urban landscapes that they often tower over. And it's grounded in the real feelings that any person would have just walking through a city that has people dying or overdosing on the street and, you know, uh, trying to get into your apartment building and stuff. And but it turns out the suburbs aren't that much better. Uh, because like maybe Nathan Lane ma wants to make you his new adult son, but, uh, everyone is zonked <laughs> out from prescription drug addiction and abuse. And there's like the ghosts of the war on terror looming because there's all these young men who voluntarily died in a war. Everyone agrees was wrong. And so the nuclear family of America, even in the comfortable suburbs is just completely crumbling. And all of this is clearly played both through Astor's satirical attitude and through Bo's anxiety as the main character um, so that takes up the first like hour and a half of the movie and for me that hour and a half of the movie is easily the best of the year I think the rest of the movie is good uh, but that first half is just like I I truly think that's like a masterpiece uh, of a first half of a movie, you know, Absolutely. and I don't even think the second half's a disappointment. It's still very good. Uh, the, the film is still like number five on my list or something like that, or maybe even higher. Um, everything else is really compelling. I just missed the disgusting apartment in the city in the pristine house in the suburbs. And I don't know. It's just 
I, I, I think that the the inward investigation of the second half is something that he needed to do. It's like, that's just the way a film like this has to be shaped, right? So after the suburbs, we go through the woods and also into his own mind. Uh, and that's an easy metaphor to make, of course, as he escapes civilization and gets further interiority and stumbles upon some weird theater camp thing where clearly it's like kind of making fun of it, but kind of indulging these weird theater camp kitschy sensibilities, which is probably the weaker part of the movie. But once he comes out of that and confronts the mother character and has that fucking trial show down at the end, like <laughs> Albert Brooks is defending your life. Uh, it's just insane. And I really feel like it does build in a really productive way, even in that middle segment, which feels aimless at the time. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's like, uh, I don't want to say it's like the film of a free man with all these three hour crazy indulgences. It's the man who wants to desperately be free. He's still pulling all these reference points. He's still trying to break out of his own shell as an artist. And I think that's so commendable to watch. Um, it's a messy film and I love it, but I think there's flaws to it, but it's easily the most surprising new release for me in quite a, some time because I had this guy pegged for just like, not for me. And, and I loved this movie. I'm just surprised at like how many people who were already in the bag for him. I mean, I guess it makes sense. Uh, with this being a little bit of a departure in terms of genre, but just completely like missed the mark on it in terms of like negative criticism that I've read about the movie. Like I feel like in particular, like the bluntness of it, um, it is something that people were like didn't respond to or particularly like, um, just like the exaggeration in, in like the first half with uh, the nightmarish qualities of the city, like towards the end, like the penis monster and then the like trial. But it's just like this is a comedy like it should be exaggerated, like character, like over the top. Like I think all of those qualities are like incredibly commendable about the film that it's like going this direction with it. And it's just, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I don't know how you could misinterpret that this film is supposed to be like incredibly funny, but like, yeah. I feel like people who are going into it more of like, just on board with him doing like dour, like horror that is like kind of humorless, which not to say like it necessarily is. I think the parts that shine through, um, and what I saw in uh, Hereditary is kind of a nasty streak with uh, his sense of humor. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm just surprised that more people uh, didn't really like this one. Again, especially because it's like some of the most ridiculous to talk about another great weed smoking scene from this year when oh my uh, God. Nathan's <laughs> Lane's daughter is like bullying like grown ass like Joaquin into smoking weed and he's high in the back seat of a car being like driven by like 17 year olds like that who are like filming I mean, him with their who are, iPhones who are, too yeah, who are filming him it's like that is like an absolute like nightmare scenario and just so funny like walking again like his reaction to all of that is hysterical like that's yeah. so good yeah it's it's interesting yeah like the negative because this is 
the most controversial movie of the year as you know people or just like there was a lot of negative receptions to it and there's like people like us who like it kind of bouncing off of that and you know it is i i could kind of see why people don't like because it's a movie that's trying to make you feel bad in in a certain sense or trying to um get you on that level of anxiety maybe that bo's feeling trying to um get you in his mind state but i feel like just uh the, the strong kind of like nightmare logic and imagery that's throughout this movie is so strong and so striking. There's like a lot of scenes like that where you talk about him smoking weed in the car or I think of like something I've been thinking about throughout this year is like the, the flashbacks to when he was a kid and he was on a cruise and he had like a potential like young romance that was unfulfilled and whatnot. And there's something like just the style of the, the, you know, the cruise and kind of like how it's coming back into the narrative. I don't know. It's, it's just something very striking. And there's a lot of uh, decisions that, you know, kind of skew any kind of like narrative logic sometimes. And um, yeah, so like, I, I guess I could kind of see like maybe fa- people who are fans of like Hereditary and Midsummer maybe not liking this because it's like... Um, like there's also like a tone in this like i don't know characters that suffer through anxiety when we show that on screen that's or we when directors show that on screen they're usually trying to invoke a sense of sympathy for that character whereas like i you know i i don't like i I don't think that's the number one priority here you know with the movie and uh i don't know yeah i was just impressed by its audaciousness and uh you know i really i think you like whether you find it funny or not is probably what hinges on your enjoyment in the movie because there's a lot of people who are just like you know like friends people who weren't involved in the film community they're like what the hell was that like i didn't want to feel that way you know what i mean i didn't want to i don't want to be guilty when they put me on trial for my life you know what i mean that's not a a great conclusion but i um i I, like obviously you know we're, we're we've championed people like todd solins we we value kind of uh the powerful negative feelings movies can make us feel sometimes and uh so i yeah i liked bo's afraid that's something i've been kind of itching to rewatch because there's certain scenes that just kind of stand out in my mind and kind of uh stay with me yeah that cruise the setup on that like the art direction and cinematography is so Mm -hmm. interesting um, I don't know. I love how fanciful he gets with this and how really detached from our actual society it feels. Like it's really in the mind of its main character. Like the world exists mm-hmm. in Joaquin's mind, kind of. And it's like just slightly different than what we actually live in. And I, I really love that. I, I, I thought the movie was so good. I need to rewatch that for sure because there, there's a lot of stuff that I kind of forgot about, like certain scenes and that I, I wish I could talk a little uh, deeper about it. But we digress and we move on because we only got like an hour more of airtime here and we got to get into our top five. Um, number five, Boston motherfucking Johnny by Charles Roxburgh starring Matt Farley for Moturn Media. Now, we've talked about these guys for years now, right? But I feel like there might be some people who listen to this podcast that aren't like extended clip heads and aren't, you know, maybe uh, catching up on all the Moturn media stuff through either us or, you know, Will or any other podcasts or writers. So, you know, it's like 
To a certain sect of online cinephiles and residents of New England, there's no need for an introduction to the latest work from Matt Farley and Charles Roxburgh. Uh, but I'm going to start from scratch here because Boston Johnny still has nearly uh, Boston Johnny still has a measly 250 letterboxed logs. Now this is a movie that people can go out and watch right now. You buy it on Vimeo. It's in your it's in your smart TV. It's in your laptop. Whatever. Um, and this is a movie that I think everyone should be watching. Uh, for Moturn Media, for the uninitiated, Farley has been making music and films for decades now. And if art was purely quantitative, he would be the greatest songwriter of all time. But since art is about quality, he's merely in the top 75 or so. Um, Farley and his director, Charles Roxburgh, have made a baker's dozen of micro-budget films starring local casts, spanning the genre gamut with monster suit horror, fantastical family dramas, autobiography, and so on. Um, the pair of films, Metal Detector Maniac and Heard She Got Married a couple years back, marked a stylistic turning point, and comparisons began uh, to flourish between them and other productive uh, and stylistically unique filmmakers like Hong Sang-soo or Joe Swanberg. And they're comedies, too. Like, all these guys make funny movies uh, that are very dialogue-based, you know? And uh, But these movies compared to their earlier work, felt a little more serious and composed, setting up major comedic payoffs through narrative rather than just silly jokes. But back to Boston Johnny, now the pair is returning to the incredibly silly high concept and high joke density comedy of something like River Beast with a slight sense of maturity earned along the way. Matt Farley's doing a voice in this movie that is the furthest from his typical speaking voice that I can recall him ever doing. It's like a Jim Carrey or Adam Sandler movie from the 90s, you know, and it's charming in its inconsistencies. <laughs> and uh, Farley's the title character, an outspoken, idiosyncratic, and possibly mentally ill local pitchman. Um, he's also a musician who plays at the local breakfast nook. And uh, don't tip him with your money because he doesn't want your money. He wants your hash browns. <laughs> I won't spoil too many of the jokes here. The film is just full of these insane idiosyncrasies, and it kind of reminds me of Hubie Halloween in that way. Uh, a, a lot of Farley stuff does, but there's a dog showdown between its rightful owner and Boston Johnny, who, by the way, just steals a dog for fun. Uh, just horrifying behavior here by Boston Johnny. Johnny, a totally immoral character. <laughs> And then uh, the man of the woods gets involved, Kevin McGee, with his mysticism. And look, I don't think it's as strong of a drama as Magic Spot. Like that one had like a really personally fulfilling emotional core to it. Uh, but this is like the funniest movie of the year to me. And that might be worth more right now. Heard She Got Murdered is also on uh, my list uh, for the year, which I think... That, that is a little bit more goofy um, to that, especially when compared to the companion film of her. She got married. Um, but like, yeah, no, Boston Johnny is just like such a just pure, just ridiculous movie. And again, I think that there are like little variations um, in the Farley Roxburgh uh, filmography that like continue to. 
I don't want to say challenge, but like surprise me um, every time. Like the the dog like competition that you mentioned there just like hilarious and in terms of like the little banner presentation it has beforehand just like so goofy and just outrageous and no one is like making um the kind of comedies that they're doing to me it's something that's like in the vein of like a tim and eric style comedy but like with a lot more like uh sensitivity and earnestness and i feel like that can could potentially like rub some people the wrong way but it's still just like ridiculous and then they just like fixate on such weird like concepts or like lines of dialogue that like ring throughout the movie and i mean like uh boston johnny's like a catchphrase of all the time which is delivered in just like the most outrageous like high pitch register that's hard to like uh, i dropped a earlier at a time like uh just <laughs> on time the, time and it's just something that like you watch the movie once and then you're just like thinking about like anytime anytime there's all the time it's out of time and uh, yeah, also his uh, listing of the different parts of the morning where he does his activities. Is, yeah, yeah, that has influenced me greatly in the last three, four days. I've just been walking around thinking, All right, do this in the listen to a podcast in the early morning. Oh, listen to a podcast in the mid morning. Oh, listen to a podcast in the early afternoon. <laughs> All time. <laughs> It's one of the most ridiculous things that's just like so many of these films are filled with what feel like inside jokes, but you don't have to be inside to get them. You only have to be inside the movie to get them. Like it's, you know, the the inside of the inside joke is just the 90 minute window in which that movie exists. And then that is always going to be with you to make dumb references to that, whether it's with your friends who also watch those movies or just to yourself like a crazy person. <laughs> I, Number I, four. Oh, go ahead. No, yeah. I just, this is the, I, I guess I give this comment a lot, but didn't see it, but I, I, I know Moturn's quality. I'm going to watch those movies very soon. Um, love what Farley and Roxburgh do. Number four, Oppenheimer by Christopher Nolan. Malcolm. Yes. Why don't you lead us off on Oppie? Yeah, no, I, I think like more, there's a lot of uh, likable aspects to this movie, whether it's like, the barrage of supporting characters and kind of like the individual moments that Nolan gives for them to shine. Um, and like, I love the, the propulsion of the movie, the pacing, this is probably my pacing, the best pacing of the year. I have to say, uh, with Oppenheimer because it really, uh, kind of just really chugs along in a way where, you know, it's, you realize, you know, there's, you do get some, some bomb action, but a lot of it are just scientists, uh, um, having arguments or uh, discussions rather maybe you know what i mean and uh nolan kind of i don't know finds that and i love how nolan frames the character of oppenheimer himself kind of like this guy who his doubt he he knows a lot of things he, he's not dumb like he's um well obviously he's not dumb but like he's not playing ignorant <laughs> to uh what he's doing here building the nuclear bomb uh like and kind of you know uh kind of the negative ramifications of it and like kind of his uh his socialist past that uh, he uh went through and kind of the pain he had with uh, a relationship he formed there 
but like kind of like a guy like frames him in history as like this guy who kind of knew what he was doing kind of knew what the negative consequences were anyways but kind of like uh you know decides to do with it anyways because he's 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 part of like history and like something grand but then obviously as the last third of the movie comes in it's something that kind of uh you know haunts him and it's not as uh great as uh you know it's it's not a plaque he has on his his fire mantle or if he does he might look at it and kind of be like now i just remember the bad shit um but yeah it's uh i you know i'm like it's it's i think this was a hit for a reason you know what i mean like with nolan and i i think you know i haven't seen a lot of his movies but i think it's probably uh my favorite nolan because i don't know i maybe i'm just not into sci-fi as much maybe i'm just more into history like a like a dad but, <laughs> um but uh yeah i i like this a lot yeah no i i really liked this and it, even if it's not sci-fi it still fits into that it mad scientist <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah it's literally it's fiction about science but uh yeah it still fits into that like christopher nolan as hollywood's mad scientist thing you know uh, <laughs> which i love though those are his best movies you know mm-hmm. whether it's interstellar tenet or this one you know and he's just treating it like an experiment but in a way it's like he's using the scientific method or whatever to explore how he could possibly maximize either uh well let's say for interstellar tenet in this one sentimentality uh high concept genre innovations and for this one history and morality you know and it's interesting that he kind of uses uh each of those kind of like planks because he's not just like ditching those ideas as he goes it kind of builds on to it as it goes because the sentimentality he achieved in interstellar that's not going to like leave him forever that's uh, you know he's a changed filmmaker after that there's always going to be a little bit of that in him and you know the guy who made tenet is never going to go away either and there's always going to be that little bit of a, a genre scientist there you know uh but i i love that this one is so much more uh, it really feels more about morality than it does about history. And I, I think that's such an interesting approach to take to a historical drama. Um, it's somewhere between Eric Banya's Vinegar Strokes in Munich and Hiroshima Mon Amour, I guess. <laughs> I, I like both of those movies, too, you know. Uh, and I, I think that like Bo is Afraid, maybe you could say it's top heavy, but I'm only going to say it as a compliment, like just in how good the first hour or so is, you know, when he's like studying Picasso at museums and thinking about, a, as he puts it, being haunted by the troubles of a hidden universe and you know it has all those crazy special effects shots that are all abstract and everything just of weird like atoms or whatever is floating around in there and nolan's cutting across all the different formats and the timelines and scenes and it's like oh he's back it's like a inception level intercutting you know and that's the thing uh history and morality how about this christopher nolan's closest companion in his dramatic intercutting good old d-dub griffith um just saying just saying he's he's been doing intolerance since inception you know 
really since before, since the Dark Knight Rises, he's been doing uh, his intolerance shit, you know, uh, or the Dark Knight rather. Uh, since the Dark Knight, he's been doing his intolerance shit uh, with his Griffithian uh, cross cutting. But yeah, I, I really love that intro. But then later on, I think it hits a second peak with both the text sequence, but more so the moral reckoning that follows, you know, that announcement of the bombs being dropped at that fucking uh, atomic pep rally, as we called it on the episode, is just like, that's, you know, his greatest demonstration of his classical drama skills is the interiority he reaches with Murphy there in that through, whether it's the selective sound mix and the sound effects of the rousing faces being turned into burnt carcasses and just the close-ups on Murphy, you know? It's it's truly stomach-churning and it's uh, it's really one of the heights of Nolan's filmography in that one little scene. Uh, JT, you liked Oppenheimer. <laughs> Loved it. I It ranks pretty highly. I think it's uh, my 12th of the year, but I still something that I feel like in terms of like, I don't know, to do an Armand White style uh, better than uh, everyone was talking about uh, Barbenheimer this last year, and uh, there is, um, I, I, I don't know, there is a more, uh, I mean, I think both movies have overt uh, political messages, um, but while, like, the sort of, like, very watered-down uh, feminism of like feminism 101 of Barbie kind of fails because I feel like it's not packaged with like an all that interesting, funny or compelling movie. I was just and continue to be surprised at like Oppenheimer's success for it's a movie that uh, the narrative and especially um, the depiction of like uh, atomic power as wholly negative is something that feels almost counter to just like every, I, I don't know, everything in American history or like the way it is like told to many Americans. I'm surprised. And I mean, again, like it, like being subsumed into uh, something that makes a billion dollars is something kind of negative. I feel like that mm -hmm. brings up an interesting point. But I, again, I'm just mostly blown away that I feel like there is a movie that is just about made a billion dollars that like uh, depicts this moment in American history and this individual as sort of a moral coward. And uh, many people went out of their way uh, to see it. Mm -hmm. It seems like that's a, a theme kind of this year, especially with the popular auteurs. Grim conclusions. A lot of grim yeah, conclusions yeah. on uh, everything that's going on, whether it's like, I don't know, Ferrari, The Killer. Uh, Kills you know, the Flower Oppenheimer. Moon. Yeah, Flower Moon. At least that's my read on those. Yeah. Grim Truths. The Year of Grim Truths. Hey, got to take your medicine. Yeah. yeah. Got to take your meds. <laughs> <laughs> A reminder to our listeners, please take your medicine. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> reminder to our listeners, please, please, please. Well, it depends what kind of meds. <laughs> okay. Just kidding. We are pro mental health on this podcast, which reminds me, we'll be right back. 
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. <laughs> you know who could have used a little therapy? Uh, the Killer from The Killer. Number three on our list, David Fincher's return to Netflix. Uh, after his disappointment with Mank, he comes back to pure pulp and just takes a victory lap pretty much. It's like he, he's back to that Fight Club 7, the game kind of like uh, really snarky, cynical, dark, highly stylized, pulpy thriller. Uh, and he's just so matured at this point that he's bringing everything he learned as a filmmaker from you know the the more high or middle brow at least films that he made after those like zodiac the social network uh and so on that like then he can apply that sensibility to this in a way and it's uh it feels more mature than those early movies but in a way he he's also just like reactivating that semi-immature cynicism uh and i love it because this is a perfect climate for that you know this is a film about society <laughs> and i uh, couldn't be happier to have david fincher make a film about contemporary society with a guy who listens to the smiths you know uh it like the the dilapidated we work and the the whole amazon basics thing and uh using postmates and something like equinox it was it was obviously reminiscent of the ikea monologue from fight club but i just feel like we're in such a world place now uh that you never you no longer have that comfort that middle class comfort of fight club and now everyone's just in that hyper individualist motivation grind set everyone for themselves gig economy uh and i i just love this film as an evisceration of that culture yeah this is the male soul movie of the year the male motivation absolutely uh, movie of the year um just because, yeah, I, I think it's it's such a smart movie in, in its perspective. It's very, like, individualistic perspective from the killer and how he lives, right? You know, how does the the modern man, he doesn't listen to the radio. He makes his own playlist. You know, he's not, he's not listening to people around him. Like, he could curate whatever he wants and can listen to whatever he wants to in that moment. And uh, where does he get his sustenance? It's not a nice home-cooked meal. He's going to find the highest protein option available at gas stations and mcdonald's you know what i mean and kind of uh make the most of that and i love him protein maxing at starbucks yeah. and mcdonald's <laughs> it's it's really mm -hmm. like as good as it gets there and uh and just like uh the kind of uh methodical nature of the movie kind of like you know i need to complete this task need to complete that task uh, you know, it's it's you know it's kind of funny. Like I find it like th like compelling and sometimes like boring a little bit at the same time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Kind of like this uh this checklist of things to do as a hitman, and it's like it's it's obviously you know giving you a more realistic view. Um, but it's just yeah, the way it's like chaptered up, and he kind of just goes location to location is something I find fun too, and. Uh, it's I don't know it's just it's a very Fincher uh, vision that's like I don't know like I, I feel like no other movies really have like perfect this tone as well as this does and uh, yeah JT what did you think about the killer we I mean we talked a lot or I mean we had brought up best cinematography at a certain mm -hmm. point um, and failed to mention the killer, which sure. I think like uh, Fincher is still like one of the best 
uh, like digital, uh, like or like one of the best practitioners to like work with digital and like the cold sterile feel it has. Mm-hmm. And I think like the world, particularly like this and Gone Girl, just works so perfectly in like depicting this sort of like antiseptic kind of lifestyle with that like. Clean, clean crispness that like uh, digital can have that I don't think like I don't know there are very few like contemporary filmmakers who want to use that look to like sort of fit in with the tone and I feel like that uh, they're just shooting like digital as film and that like I don't know reflects poorly on a lot of those movies and uh, yeah I, I don't know I just love how that like blends in with the cold coolness of like the digital world like you're seeing like WeWorks and like even the way like that like throughout a lot of his movies he's been able to integrate like text like on screen there are like subtle little like things that like Fincher feels perfect for sort of um, detailing the ails of the modern world through his like style. And again, it's like in a way that's so like slick and like fun and like genre first, like where it's just like we talked a lot again, grim visions uh, from auteurs, but this is like, uh, Fincher is feeding you your vegetables, but he's like sneaking it under the bun of a McDonald's hamburger. It's a- <laughs> God, we talked about this last week. I want McDonald's so bad. Yeah, I know. <laughs> You're like, I wish. It's I, insane it's- how much I want McDonald's lately. <laughs> the last couple of weeks, I've just been having McDouble dreams. <laughs> It's like what he's like. I don't really see what's so grim about this vision of going to get McDonald's. That sounds pretty. pretty <laughs> to me. By the way, yeah. So I downloaded the McDonald's app just to check prices, <laughs> just because we talked about that combo last time. So they don't have that that mix and match McDouble McChicken anymore, which is very disheartening. But I still think there there are ways to get a couple of sandwiches for under ten bucks at McDonald's. You know. It's not bad. You can Let's clear the air. Let's clear the air. Because last episode we uh, we said some bad things about the McDonald's, McDonald's corporation. Menu. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, it, it used to be way better. Is is the oh, point? Oh my god, are you kidding me? As a kid, I'm about to have a Don Draper Hershey's meltdown right now. Talking about walking into McDonald's with five quarters in my pocket, you know, getting a double cheeseburger, not even a McDouble, the double cheeseburger. Yeah, come on now, that was classic. They it was the only. It was the. Yeah. It was the only beef I had in my life. <laughs> they took this from us because everyone ate too many of them. It's true. Flesh. I was going. They they had too many twelve year olds wandering in with their mommy's quarters. <laughs> Look, I, I was, was supposed to be spending those cards on those money on that those quarters on baseball cards, not diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> we need more McDonald's scenes in movies. You know, we need. They, they need to lower their price. I'm pretty sure it's like a pretty high price to. Yeah, a McDonald's scene in a movie. Lower your price. Just, well, just I mean, you uh, with your food. Tom Anderson heads will remember the fake McDonald's that is in the city of commerce in uh, California, where they shoot all the McDonald's commercials. And wh- why doesn't a filmmaker just use that as a set? Just be like, all right, we're we're setting up camp here for a couple of weeks. We're making a movie because like it, 
it must be pretty expensive. And I don't think, like, if you say, I, I'm pretty sure they're like, there's nothing negative about McDonald's in this thing you're shooting, right? You know, like, <laughs> you, you, I think they might, I don't know. I think they, they want to keep their image clean. It's they don't true. want any Morgan Spurlocks on the scene trying to blow up their uh, blow up their spot, you know. I I loved Fincher's vision on this the the cinematography the work with the cinematographer that he does here is incredible. Same cinematographer as Ferrari, huh? Let's see. I wonder who got the better out of him. Wonder if he just ran out band of juice. For band. <laughs> yeah. Uh, moving on to number two. My number one of the year coming in with, we didn't talk about this before, but well, well, let's do a little, let's do a little recap here. All right. Number five, Boston Johnny had 20 points. Number four, Oppenheimer had 24 points. The killer first film to hit 30, 31 points for the killer. But number two, close your eyes by Victor Arise, 38 points. And it deserves a billion points. It was my number one of the year. It was the only film that I saw this year that I actually felt like was a classic. Just like a genuine instant classic. And it's just his third fictional feature in a 50-year career. Uh, Spanish master Victor Ariza's return. It suggests an artist who's like withdrawn within his own medium and his own passion for decades rather than trying to escape it. Like you might see some kind of movie about like a reclusive artist and he's like, no, I'll never paint again, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, but he's like someone who clearly the, the character in this movie who is going back to finish an unfinished film and find the actor who went missing uh for from this unfinished film is so filled with passion for its own medium that it verges on a magic of movies kind of thing but it doesn't hit that thank god because the tone is so elegiac and it has such personal tragedy and it is a movie for cinephiles but it posits itself between a life lived through images and experiences the combination of references to movies and the the editor max who we talked about like living in a room full of posters you know and making references to movies every time he can uh like yeah that's in your blood but this film is all about human relationships still at its core it's not like the movies themselves are gonna necessarily save anyone here and i i really think that is what the final gesture comes down to you know that that max character jokes that what he attempts here by showing the unfinished film to the actor who he eventually finds who was suffering from amnesia he thinks that showing him the film footage will snap him back into reality right and uh, that's when max says that miracles haven't happened with cinema since dryer uh yeah. referring to films like Ordet and uh whatnot so what we get is closer to reality though and it's just one of the greatest goodbyes uh that a filmmaker can possibly have i i thought it was just a phenomenal curtain call uh speaking of curtain calls this film has like multiple amazing scenes that just fade to black just like letting you just be like damn curtain call moment you know (laughs) i i love that like uh victor arisa is just like taking bows throughout the movie uh and there's a great sense of finality to it because of that and i i just thought that this was a fucking fantastic movie about dying for the movies yeah no i love this um i had like the experience of like downloading this 
and uh, starting it like three or like three or four times throughout the week and just not like I don't know just not being in the right mindset and just like being like oh like this is like two hours and 40 minutes like I don't really know anything about this movie and then just like finally when I actually gave it like a fair shake I like just instantly just like uh, loved it and like all like all the pieces like fall into place and I feel like it's something that was like comparable uh, to fallen leaves uh, to me where it's just like I don't know people talk a lot about like a lack of like films for adults nowadays which I kind of don't really like that like framing of things like I don't know it's it feels kind of silly I mean certainly in like feels more applicable to like Hollywood mainstream movies where that like is certainly the case but I feel like you like more or less like, like there are very few movies where there's like complication or like uh, to them and like a complicated worldview where things aren't as clear cut and Close Your Eyes is just one of those movies that for me feels uh, akin to something like uh, The Long Gray Line where you have so like it's the poetry of life like you get like moments that are beautiful and like sentimental and like a call back to like cinema like them singing my rifle my pony and me just beautiful and fun and just uh, amazing but then you also just get like the sadness of like um when uh the lead character is trying to track down the daughter of uh, uh, this actor that's disappeared and finally and like finds her and talks to her about doing like a, like some ludicrous interview for like a shitty like talk like talk show um, and she's like yeah no I don't really like I don't know I can't watch my father's movies like I don't know if my son has any interest in that or if he even does and like there's so much like real life pain in there and the movie like swings back and forth between like pain and beauty and these experiences in real life and uh the filmic world and is just filled with like this complication where i feel like it's like as an artist who's matured and uh been working for so long it's just like you can't like give a clean cut answer to these questions and these problems and that like there is like there, there is there's beauty and there is suffering in the world and uh, close your eyes tells that tale in such a masterful way um that yeah i, I don't know i love it and I, I agree with you like this i would say potentially our, our number one also feels like classic status to me but this like I don't know. Just amazing. Yeah. Malcolm, you actually saw this before either of us. Yeah. And I kind of saw it towards the back end of the festival thing. And like, I feel like I like the way you guys talk about it. Like, I'm not like quite like this is like transcendent, like next level for me. But it like it's something that like I've thought about consistently since seeing it. And just just there's so many aspects to this movie. Right. Because like. In addition to all that stuff, it's like almost kind of like we have the main character being like the cinematic detective and like yeah. tr- oh, trying yeah, to yeah. use movies, you know, uh, almost inadvertently in a way to like solve a mystery and whatnot. And I love um, 
the bookends of like how the movie with like the or not the bookends but i'm trying to i'm sorry does it end with like the scene from the not fake movie but the the old movie that the person made it before? ends with them watching, watching it, it and yeah. then the uh the actor's final reaction true yeah his eyes yeah because yeah. Yeah. yeah okay yeah i forgot so yeah i i mean i I would love to watch the the fake film within the movie too. It seems so compelling. Yeah. Like I, I, I would like it's it's almost just as good as the the you know yeah. what follows, and like yeah, like kind of the way this guy you know kind of goes about it and kind of the you know the sobering reality of which he lives and kind of him dealing with the TV stuff. It's a it's a movie that I, I feel like I don't uh, quite have like the the strongest grasp on but like it it really left a strong impression on me so it made my list and i i I really want to rewatch it just because i i don't know like like i said i i don't have the greatest grasp on it but there's stuff with it that sticks with me and there's so many different like layers to everything that uh yeah it's really it's it's a piece of work yeah it's like part a uh, procedural kind of investigative movie, mm-hmm. but it's also so subjective that as we see this main character kind of thinks in cinema. So him being the cinematic detective is almost bad because he has yeah. these flights of fancy that throw him in the wrong uh, direction that end up being like the most beautiful parts of the movie. I mean, it's a very languidly paced movie uh, and it just like kind of has these detours that end up with these insane frames that I just, you know, how you get there from the plot of the movie makes no sense, but you're in for the ride because of the aesthetic experience. Um, I also think in the midst of the drama, I mean, the stuff with the daughter played by Anna Tarrant is incredible. And those really intimate close-ups in shot reverse shot with her uh, and the filmmaker Miguel are really moving, especially their eyes. I mean, Anna Tarrant's eyes, like the way the cinematographer captures them are really, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting, uh, like thing where we're somewhat subjective with the filmmaker and it almost feels like we're investigating this woman's emotions in a way but he's also trying to humanize himself in the meantime like realizing that he is going through like he's activating a very sensitive thing obviously uh in this woman so it's it's a really tight balancing act uh in terms of the drama and i think the style is incredible and yeah it's for me it's the best film of the year but it is only number two number one you could probably predict it we haven't said it yet the number one film for extended clip in 2023 is the holdovers by alexander payne um hey look i just walked outside and it looked like the damn holdovers (laughs) (laughs) white out this is just great. I mean, I, I didn't really write much about the holdovers because, to be honest, like the other, it, it doesn't feel like the most major of Alexander Payne's work. And I still think it's like in the top half of his filmography for sure. But it's not like he's breaking new ground into some transcendent form of drama. It's just a really, really, really strong Alexander Payne movie. And we've talked about him quite a bit on this podcast between Sideways and Election uh, and Downsizing, which we still haven't done a proper Downsizing episode (laughs) on. Uh, But his 
knack for looking at America and its uh, weird pockets, uh, weird regionally specific pockets and the idiosyncratic characters that often exist as outsiders in them and the strange but universal dramas that uh, become apparent in those situations like his skill has not decreased at all it's it's a much more straightforward drama though which is why it has garnered such acclaim compared to like you know he's clearly trying other things in downsizing you know uh but this is probably his most acclaimed film since like nebraska at least uh and so i i get why because it's a really really strong drama with very fun characters and also the aesthetic presentation is its own thing we have to dive into about nostalgia for a better time in american cinema and the fake film grain and the way it's utilized for a period piece and i i just think it's like uh it's both a very nice cozy enjoyable middle brow drama and it also has a lot that you can kind of pick at uh and uh peel at and make it more expansive yeah, no, it's a nice, like, soft throwback to, I think, a style of film that we all kind of generally appreciate. Like, uh, um, I know uh, Ashby is a big, like, like reference point here. I know our buddy Rob Franco just watched The Last Detail for the first time. And that's and it's just one of those movies where it's just, like, the hangout sort of journey and even though the beats of it are well-tread, I mean, there's, like, a specificity to character here that makes it unique and, like, all its own. And it is, like, fun to see, like, someone like Payne, who I feel like I generally, like, admire and appreciate for, like, his cynicism and sort of, like beating up his characters is taking it a little bit easier. I mean, I still think like they're like putting them through the ringer to a certain extent, but definitely like uh, a looser hand in terms of like throttling the characters. Absolutely. And uh, no, this is the first film of his where he doesn't seem like he's criticizing the characters, but rather giving them hard things to deal with. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like I, I really think Giamatti is a character that is clearly flawed from the, from the get go. Like you see his, interpersonal shortcomings uh and there's a little bit of that extra pain uh pain and pain in there with the <laughs> shots of the uh the anal wart cream or whatever he has yeah, or the yeah. hemorrhoid cream or whatever uh but for the most part it's like the film is really about just putting these characters kind of through the dramatic ringer to bring them closer together. And it's, it's easily the least cynical and most heartwarming film in the pain catalog that I've seen at least. And I, I, I like, Wait, I've seen all his movies. What am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I like that sentimentality, but I think it's sometimes like harder to achieve that and have it feel yeah. like sincere and not like bullshit. And no, absolutely. And like, it stuns me. No, I think that's that's almost more impressive because he's shown us that he can do it through a sense a sense of somewhat detached cynicism and irony and the like comedy as a as a coping me- coping mechanism in his dramas. But here the comedy is like so heartfelt. It's like 
just characters bonding and actually laughing on screen kind of we're very rarely laughing at the misfortunes of the characters like we would in the other uh films or not so much misfortunes but the shortcomings of the characters this film is like i i love that he's actually able to pull that off because in a vacuum i probably don't love that choice if alexander payne told me yeah i'm gonna make a really nice movie that they could like show on hallmark theoretically <laughs> like it's gonna be like a really sweet movie i'd be like what are you doing what are you trying to do here but it, he he pulled it off and that's like the i don't think it's his best movie even by a long shot but it's like one of his greatest feats to be able to pull this off so sincerely yeah, no, it's it's middle brow excellence. Like it, it's uh, yeah, it's Brooksian. And I, yeah, and I and I think I think that's what impressed me the most. And like I, I think I saw some. I mean, this movie's beloved, but like some light criticisms being like, oh, this is too sappy. It's too sentimental. And like I guess you could think that, but it's like I think when sentiment is earned in a movie, it's super powerful. And it's like I think Payne goes to great lengths to to earn the sentimentality here. And uh, you know, it's. Like with the Giamatti character, um, you know, because it's like you have it framed with like the kid and we're, we're, you know, we're seeing things through his eyes. But I think there's a real strength in like we have, uh, you know, with Giamatti and like uh, Divine Joy Randolph. What's her? Paul Hunnam is his name. I don't remember him saying, I guess you call him Mr. Hunnam, right? He's your teacher. Yeah. But uh, like those characters in particular are kind of, it's like the classic, like it just reminds me of like uh, my own life. And like, not that I went to a sick, uh, um, you know, private boarding school, you know, and my parents left me over for Christmas. But like, th- those are like, char- like characters of like people, you know, along through life and like, you wonder about their life, like a weird teacher. It's like, is, is he going to home alone every night? Like what's, what's going on in his life that, you know, put, put him in this position. And yeah, I don't know. Like the, the strength of like, you know, um, centering those character stories and like kind of, uh, you know, with the teen character, the classic, you realize, Oh yeah. Adults are human too, you know, and they have a lot of stuff they deal with. And like, yeah, this isn't necessarily, uh, new territory but I, I just feel like the setting of like is this huge private school you know stuck in the snow mixed with the um you know something we forgot to fa- uh, fail to mention we have the christmas senta- uh, sentimentality the the mm-hmm. holidays aspect and how you know pain obviously recognizes you know the holidays for people with families sometimes is a joyous time but if you don't get along with your family so well or um you know you have uh you don't have them because like they're, they're dead or something like that you know it's actually a painful time and like the expectation to to be happy is kind of like overbearing and uh yeah so like i don't know just kind of like these these uh you know like eddie said just recognizing the perspective of the outsider and kind of just uh, presenting it in a sentimental way is a great feat because there's a lot, there's a, you know, in lesser hands, it could be kind of just slop. But um, I yeah. also think that there's a little bit of an overstated uh, quality in the reception to this, to this as like a 70s pastiche movie because mm-hmm. it's also like a beat for beat kind of remake of a 30s French movie called Merluce. 
And like I, I feel like it, there's a lot. He's kind of running the stylistic gamut. Like it is obviously the cinematography and the needle drops, and it, it's all very period appropriate, you know. Um, but I, I do feel like there's something more reflexive there about remaking a film from the 30s in France uh, through a guise of like a kind of faux 70s Hal Ashby aesthetic, but with contemporary thinking about the 1970s. Uh, and, and I think that makes it a more interesting object, especially coming from someone like Payne, who, I don't know, his, his thoughts on American specificity, uh, like in the towns that he depicts, used to be so important. But then you think about his last two now, it's like downsizing and this, it's like these are not places where he's hanging out. He can go <laughs> like observe the behaviors of people uh, in, in downsizing world or in 70s Boston anymore. Uh, so I, I I find that really interesting of him maybe going a little more interior and thinking instead of about the people of specific places, he's thinking more about humanity as a whole and just like where you can go dramatically just with characters, you know? Um, and, and I think that's a really interesting stride for him. And I, I think that of his generation, he's, he's the only one who's not the only one, but it's really nice to see that he is still just like trending upward in my opinion like maybe sideways and downsizing are like my two favorite alexander payne movies right but his overall like between where he's at with critical acclaim and getting movies funded and also his current level of skill what he's kind of putting out there for us he's trending upward for sure right now and that's that's an amazing thing to say about someone who debuted with citizen ruth and then even had a classic in the 90s with election not that citizen ruth's not a a classic debut in its own right but like to make something as good as election in 99 and then totally transform yourself as a filmmaker to make something like the holdovers uh 30 plus years later is just like a roughly 30 years later is just like such a remarkable achievement and uh, i can't wait to see what he makes as a fucking old geese you know when he's making like late style movies as an 80 year old like reminiscing about the 2000s about the bush era like that'll be amazing (laughs) but uh alexander payne my hat's off to you uh as always you're definitely one of the better directors of the pod as we've talked about uh pretty recently with the sideways and election eps and soon to come with the downsizing episode that is both a promise and a threat uh any any final words on the holdovers here before we move on i'm all good i said my piece and by move on i say goodbye we will see you Next time on the clip for a normal episode, uh, back to the regular structure. I know this was a midweek double drop. Next week, we'll go back to the Patreon Monday, regular feed Thursday, uh, or Patreon Tuesday. Eh, you know, it's early week, late week. That's how I do it these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but we will see you then. And thank you for making it this far into the episode. If you're only hearing this half, this second half, you can go back and hear the first half on Patreon. You can hear the whole thing patreon.com slash extended underscore clip the link is in the episode description it's five dollars a month for an extra episode every week and 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 if you donate at the 15 dollar a month executive producer tier we will dedicate an episode to you and your 
film programming prowess. You will pick a movie for us to cover. Very soon, we will be doing one of these episodes on Jean Eustache's The Mother and the Whore. And then, guess what? We just got another producer in the bank the other day, baby. Uh, I will have to double check on what his pick is, but we are very excited to uh, jo- have this guy join us. Well, we'll talk about it on the next episode. But anyway, if this is your first time listening to Extended Clip, go back. There's a fat back catalog, but it's even fatter if you donate for the Patreon. Any final words, boys? I, w- I just want to say $5 is an incredible deal. I think I've heard <laughs> that you cannot even get a McDonald's sandwich for that uh, <laughs> price anymore. So, uh, um, I don't know. I Let mean, alone just, two McDonald's sandwiches, yeah, exactly. which is what you should get for that price. <laughs> I, You know, look, sorry, I don't mean to raise my voice. It's just something I get passionate about. Let's go get some McDoubles, boys. <laughs> That's where we'll all be if you want to find us. You yeah. know, at McDonald's. Yeah, at your local McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> Um, also, you can email the podcast at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you know, you send it, we read it. That's always the promise. So uh, on our next episode, I hope we get some mailbag stuff because, you know, look, I'm going to be nicer this time. That's my promise. I'll be really nice. Just read it. <laughs> uh, I won't even answer. I'll just read it. And Malcolm and JT will give their patented nice guy answers. <laughs> True. I, I need to be harsher. I need to be <laughs> no 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 if anything yeah. about this podcast and all three people on it i think we got to push positivity that's what i've learned lately that's you why i push positivity or people do not like you at all <laughs> that's why we put holdovers number one we're pushing p pushing positivity you know what pushing i mean p baby pushing, pushing p, p. <laughs> all right goodbye <laughs>